Thank you so much. Uh, so, hi, um, my name is Sarah J. And hi, I am gratefully recovering in Overeaters Anonymous from compulsive overeating, bulimia, and restriction. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to speak. Thank you, Carol. And thank you, everybody uh, who makes this incredible meeting and resource of these recordings possible. I'll just qualify and say I found OA Recovery in New York. And at that time, one of the resources I was offered were these podcasts. So I knew about the power of this meeting before ever um, actually standing here in front of you. And I really want to focus on how OA recovery has changed my life. Um, I know for anyone who's new listening to this or here in this room, um, you know, the format that I think is beautifully simple, um, that where I hear people qualify is what was it like, what happened, and what is it like now? So I'll quickly say what it was like was totally unmanageable, um, very um, exhausting. I was exhausted by this disease, whether it was managing food and food behaviors from the time I was a little girl because people noticed I was eating and it was sort of a joke in my house that I was, I, I don't come from very big numbers. Um, I've, I have various facets of this disease, whether compulsively overeating, undereating, um, body image obsession, uh, compulsive exercise, you know, exercise bulimia. I have it all. <laughs> and I remember very early on the feeling of something is wrong. Something is wrong with me. Something is wrong with um, everybody around me. And I can't escape. I'm trapped. And food felt like sort of a, a trap, not, not a trap door. It wasn't a trap door in a great way, but it was delicious like on the way down. Um, that was the feeling, just sort of, I'm, I'm trapped. Like I can't escape whether it was my house, my family of origin, um, or just my own inner life, my own inner world, my feelings. It was so uncomfortable to feel anything. That's my best memory. Even, like, of course I didn't want to feel upset or sad or punished, which I I often was. Um, And I'll just quickly say I come from a family where compulsive eating of, you know, lots of restriction. People were on diets, and you know, I remember being like three or four, and someone saying, does my butt look fat in this? And I'd be like, no, I don't know. Um, but I got a lot of clarity that, you know, appearance and body were like a higher power. Um, you know, being lovable to others through that external means of how one looks was very important. And then everybody was kind of, like it says somewhere in our OA literature, I think it's in the 12 and 12, you know, we were either running to the food or running from it. And that was my experience, was just pinging back and forth between, you know, um, food was my savior, food was my comfort, my friend, um, food was also my enemy. I thought of it as a monster. There were bad foods and good foods. And I was, you know, I was just sort of like this, I was on this hero's journey through my day, trying to like dodge food and hear my calling and then go to the gym for three hours. And, you know, like, did I, you know, have I gotten the lesson yet? It was just so exhausting. And so um, that was just childhood. (laughs) And, And, uh, you know, by by the time I was like nine, I remember I was managing my body. I had this idea. And this is the other thing that I want to share with the group and anyone listening. Um, You know, body image is such an illusion. It is not about my body. And of course I want to live at a healthy body weight like the, you know, like OA 
um, kind of lays out for us. We get to maintain, move toward or maintain a healthy body weight so we can flourish, so we can be a maximum service in this world, so we can enjoy our life. But I grew up in a cultural, I come from a multicultural mixed race family. And I got messages in one part of that culture that to be sort of more zaftig was good. It was like, you're too skinny, eat something. Something's wrong with you. Boys aren't going to like you. You have to be bigger and curvier. And so I remember praying not to be a beanpole. Please, God, give me this, give me that, like make me better. And, and, you know, a few years later, I moved from that cultural environment to another cultural environment where it was the opposite message. And I was like, why did you give me this stuff? I don't want it anymore. Take it back. I want to, you know, look like a boy. And so I just want to say that depending on the culture, opposite messages of what was wrong with me felt equally true and they're equally false. There's nothing about me that I can fix, manage, control that will make me more lovable or a more worthy person. I can say that to you right now, but I promise you, whenever I go to fellowship or brunch or breakfast or whatever I do after this, I've already had a meal because that's part of my abstinence, but uh, I will be sitting there doing math in my head about how much I need to eat or not eat, how much could I burn, you know, very subtly walking, you know, like Pilates walking, holding my whole body in, you know, full, perfect, upright, while moving and burning. And it's, again, exhaustion. It really robs me of my life, of my chi, my life force. So I say that to say I do not call myself a recovered with an ED compulsive eater because every morning, I heard this said um, when I first came into program, the disease wakes up a half hour before I do with all the ideas and the plans and the, you know, that same kind of hero's journey with like, I feel like I just have like a sword with, you know, I'm just like plowing through, like, get away from me. Also, everybody come here and love me. It's just really painful. Um, And I need prayer and meditation just to calm all of that down first thing in the morning. So acknowledging I'm powerless um, was one of the first gifts of this program. And I came into this program after I'll skip, I'll skip adolescence and you know my early adulthood, but basically that same pattern of something's wrong with me. I either need to be bigger or smaller or lighter or darker or less curly or something about me needed to be fixed. And I spent morning till night trying to fix and repair and change myself. Um, and part of that also included fixing, repairing, and changing you, managing and manipulating you, making sure that you loved me the most. Just loving me wasn't enough. It was really, like, I I say with love, um, you know, there's a member of my family who's a narcissist, or that was the diagnosis back then, and I believe I picked up on a lot of that. Like, I, there's never enough, and that translated to the food. One bite was too much, and a thousand would never be enough. And um, anyway, I lived my life that way. Perfectionism was a real theme. There was just this sense of, like, when I'm perfect, everything's good. And that translated to my meals. It had to be the perfect meal. And if the meal was imperfect in some way, I had to then eat another revenge meal to, like, you know, really show that other meal how much it sucked. Um, Things like that. It was just this most twisted, painful logic. I knew it was ridiculous. My friends would be like, didn't you just eat? Like, I'd sit down and be like, I'll have the hungry... Hungry woman special, please, you know, at like, and just a massive trough of food, and it still wasn't enough. And um, and then I would go run a marathon, literally. Um, so I knew that I had a problem. Um, I just thought the problem was me and the world and you, and that I, you know, why couldn't I eat a dozen cupcakes and be a size zero? 
Uh, that just didn't make any sense to me. Um, and so I tried that. I really did. I tried to um, maintain a self-image which required me to abandon my actual self. That's what I would say this disease was for me. Like the maintenance of, you know, body size and shape and weight and obsession with that and then kind of eating because I, you know, had no internal life that I was nurturing in any way. That was just sort of the engine that propelled my days. And I, you can succeed a lot with that kind of engine, unfortunately, in a culture that, you know, does mislead people into thinking their bodies are a measure of their worth and value, um, and in a culture that rewards, you know, work like overworking, um, compulsively needing to prove myself all the time. I did very well if your metric for success is constantly working and seeking approval, and that got me to a certain point, and then I found myself um, in the most successful thing that you can do in what I in my work world. Crying, uh, having just vomited back, back, you know, in the back of the thing, and everyone on my social media pages was going, "Oh my God, I would die for your life! You're so amazing! You're so this! You're so that!" And I had to like wipe the vomit off my borrowed, you know, jewelry. Sorry to be graphic, but that's when I realized there's no there there. There's no amount of climbing this ladder of perfecting myself, of calorie counting, and you know, fat macros, there was no amount of fasting that was going to help me feel clean because I felt dirty as a soul. I just felt worthless. And so a friend uh, who was in another 12-step program helped. Eventually, I found my way to an OA workshop, and I hated it. I hated everything about it. I totally hated it. I was like, this is not me. These are not my people. I don't understand. This is horrible. And what I've learned since is the disease is a genius. It knows how to keep me away from whatever is going to be helpful and convince me that my way is working. Even, you know, like it's almost like I get a flash of that acronym for God that I love, gift of desperation. I get that flash of desperation. And if I don't jump through that portal right then, 10 seconds later, it's like, Oh my god, but no, you know, we're fine. We just, we just, this is the wrong gym. Like, we need a better gym. You know, if it had a steam room, we'd be, we'd sweat wildly, and it just is like endless. So, I was, even though I hated it that first, I want to say this for anybody who it's not sticking. Um, when I first walked into the rooms and it wasn't sticking, I went through so much pain because you can't unring that bell, right? Once somebody says, once somebody tells my whole story of hiding food and, you know, whatever, like uh, turning up the music really loud so nobody can hear me throw up, like all, somebody knew all those details and I heard it and I was like, I'm not alone and people are saying this is a problem and they're saying there's a solution. So that kept, it probably took me eight, it did, it took me eight months to come back to OA, eight months of uh, what do they say? Try some controlled eating. I, try, I tried some controlled eating. And it also took me um, getting very clear that I didn't want to keep living the way I was living. I, didn't, I wasn't suicidal per se, but I just remember thinking, this is not a life. I can't sustain this. Um, and so I became willing to go to any length, and I got a sponsor right away once I really came in. And I um, started another 12-step program if anyone wants to ask me about that after, you're welcome to. But um, I want to keep the focus on OA recovery because it is so specific for me. 
I can put down other substances and never pick them up. I can even do the kind of process addiction conversation about those other things. Food is a non-negotiable. I have, as they say, you have to let the tiger out of the cage three times a day and maybe five times if you have snacks or whatever that is. And for me, restriction was so intense that I treated OA like a diet in the beginning. For me, I learned eventually that that doesn't work, that restricting always leads to the opposite, to binging. And I had to learn what, what my current abstinence is now, which is no binging, no purging, and loving the hell out of myself unconditionally. I am unconditionally worthy of love. So if, if I walk in here scraping crumbs off my face, I still love myself. I'm honest with my sponsor, but I don't have the punishing approach to program that I once did. I was, again, if I use this program as a diet, I'm still in my will, and I haven't taken steps one, two, and three. So I have no idea where I am in time, and I feel like I'm... Uh, Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, so I'll just say, I really hope this is helpful. And even, um, even my pausing now to get present and just sort of ask out loud, um, where am I? What's happening? That is what I learned in OA. I ask for help. I pause. I acknowledge what's actually happening. Um, and I think my old life before OA was just I don't know what's here. I'm going to be vague about it, but I'm going to either slather some food on it or, you know, blame everyone around me and just kind of hide in a bunker of food or exercise. And now my job, my moment-to-moment job is to make conscious contact with my HP, which includes breathing occasionally, um, and really asking. uh, I I mentioned these four questions that I got from a sponsor um, in New York before I moved to L.A. Who am I? How do I feel? What do I want? And what do I need? Not answering those questions leads me straight to the fridge. And I lived an entire life never asking or even knowing that those questions were available to be asked, much less honestly answered. So yes, this program is about the tools, the nine tools, uh, sponsorship, now I'm gonna give myself a test. Sponsorship, meetings, uh, telephone, writing, um, uh, oh boy. Uh, literature, uh, service, um, fill in the rest of the number yourself, go look it up, it's on the website, we have an excellent comprehensive website. But my point is that those tools are vital and the steps, I can't say enough about the steps. Um, I've worked two rounds, no, one, one and a half rounds of steps in OA and it did change my life and um, it basically gave me a map to the truth of who I am. It gave me clarity about my own kind of, you know, internal topography that I was always trying to erase with food or that I was always trying to erase with what I wanted you to believe about me and my image and what I was trying to tell myself about me and my image, um, which was often very negative. So I want to say steps one, two, and three for me are obviously it's about restoration to sanity. It's about admitting that my way doesn't work. It's about accepting that even though I know my way doesn't work and I just said it, I'm still going to try to keep doing it. And it's about having a sense of humor about that eventually. Like eventually I just have to um, stop being so deadly serious about the fact that this is how God made me. And if God made me like this... Maybe instead of making myself miserable trying to do God's job, which is, you know, God can change me, but I can't. I really can't. I, self, this is not a self-improvement program. It's a self-acceptance program while God does the work as long as I'm willing to do it. 
So, um, boy, that was like a, there was no punctuation in that sentence at all. Um, uh, but what I was trying to get around, get around to is automatic negative thinking, um, the perfectionism, which is a form of, I always thought, people would say, oh, you're such a perfectionist. I'm like, oh, thank you. You know, it's not a compliment. Like, this is not a way to live. It's literally saying something that I know doesn't exist, perfection, is my goal every day. So every day I wake up knowing cognitively that I'm going to hit the pillow having failed. That is a recipe for eating all day. That is a recipe for like, you know, false relationships, transactional ways of living. Do you love me? Are you enough for me? Is this going to make me fat? Like there's no way to God through that, you know, that path. So I had to start being available to God so that I could hear the other voice, the, not the voice that was like, you're fat, you messed up yesterday, your friends hate you, you know, you're not good enough, also we hate them, they're not good enough, like that whole thing. Um, slowly, as I prayed and meditated first thing in the morning, that was my, my sponsors encouraged me to get on my knees, actually, and I did I do that, I did it this morning. I didn't grow up in religion per se, like I didn't believe in a God, I had a vague sense of a punishing God concept. So I had to throw all that out. And as was suggested to me, you don't have to call it God. It can be the universe. It can be love. Worship something besides food in your body, and it's going to help you right away. And so, you know, the power of the group was where I went for my spirituality. I would listen and hear, you know, God shots all the time. And I didn't need to believe in a bearded guy in the sky to understand that there needed to be a power greater than me. And there was. Something makes the sun rise and set, even if it's just, you know, astronomy, believe in something that will allow me to eat sanely just for this one meal. And I really had to piece it together like that. When I came in, people would say, I've been here 30 years. And I would think, oh my God, I just need to get through 30 minutes. Like I just need to get through this meeting without getting up, running out and eating. And in the beginning, I couldn't do that. I would leave the meeting and eat after. Um, It's really been a journey for me. Um, but I, I guess what I will say is I did develop a relationship, a moment-to-moment relationship with really my higher power, and I say this a lot um, with, when I'm working with others, working with sponsees or newcomers, it can just be that little voice that's inside. I've always had that voice that was like, you know, why are we dating this guy? We don't really like him. Like, why, you know, why are we standing here talking to our boss when we know we have to go to the bathroom? Like, why can't we just go to the bathroom? That's really important. No, 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 I have to stay here. You know, there was always that internal dialogue of, like, there was a sane voice in there. That was my God in the beginning. Just, you know, when, like, when I can feel a cl- that little click that I'm done eating, don't immediately override it. Try to sit and pause and hear it when it says, hey, we're done eating, and now we don't want to feel but let's try. Let's just try to feel what's here when the meal is over. And I'll just say, it's still hard for me. My life expands because of OA. I'm you know, more available to more things. I say yes more. Um, I do use the uh, tools and steps regularly. I have to write a fourth step daily, probably, on something or someone because I have like a resentment factory inside that I can't control and I don't have to judge it anymore. I can't will it away. I just get to make sure it doesn't like, you know, take over my life and my... If I'm not careful, I will wake up thinking the universe, thank you, is unfriendly. The universe hates me. I hate it. Good luck. Good luck like being effective in any way with that attitude. So I'll just say in my remaining uh, five minutes that... Um, service has been huge. 
Uh, I believe service is the antidote to body image issues. Um, I was told that, and I, I have found it to be true. If I'm standing there thinking, you know, this isn't right or something's wrong with me, um, if I call somebody else and ask them how they're doing, all of a sudden, whatever the body part was shrinks back to the size of like, You know what I mean? It, I literally have what feels like a, um, a <laughs> an automatic conversion in my head that if I have a feeling, I suddenly look fat. If I have, you know, a difficult conversation, suddenly, like I look in the mirror and I don't know what happened between, you know, an hour ago and now, but suddenly I'm hideous and I need to go lose 50 pounds. So I mention that because, again, the body image thing for me is so connected to food. It is so much about trying to manage my feelings um, and take away my anxiety. And if I just learn to acclimate to my feelings, sit, you know, don't just do something, sit there. And that's what the writing and the journaling are for. That's what picking up the four today, first thing in the morning, is for. It's like, give myself different thoughts so that I'm not steeped in those automatic negative thoughts about myself and the world. And it is okay to do thought replacement. I use affirmations related to OA. I will remind myself, thank you, God, for this meal that is plenty. This is, I am full and I don't need more. Um, the love I'm looking for is not in food. Uh, the sweetness I'm seeking is not in this you know, sweet item. It's out there in the sunshine. It really is true that if I just practice daily, it's not overnight and it's not perfect and it's not forever. I have to do it daily. But if I practice, I can actually retrain my brain. And this is just neuroscience at a certain point. I mean, it's OA. I don't want to bring in outside issues, but <laughs> our brains are wired to keep doing whatever we've been doing. So if you can come to OA and get a day, oh, I forgot about this and I'm so glad it's coming up now. Somebody said to me in the beginning, if you can get a day, you can get a week. You can, with help. Like, if you can get a day of abstinence under your belt, you can get a week of abstinence under your belt. And if you can get seven days, you can get 30. And if you can get 30, you can get a lifetime. It's one day at a time. And we, I focused on one meal at a time. So I need to hear that now, 10 years into this journey. Um, I mentioned quickly that my life expands. And I, I want to say that that's the great news. And it's also the reminder for me that I need this program because as my life levels up, the disease levels up. Um, I find that it's really, really difficult to take big, expansive good news without wanting to stuff my face. Um, environments where I work have copious amounts of free food and I'll have something really exciting happen and all of a sudden it's just like, hey, I, I believe this is grazing behavior, you know, because I'm happy, because I'm celebrating. So like learning how to acclimate as my life grows to asking a power greater than myself to remind me that I'm not running the show, that I'm safe and I'm loved and I'm being cared for and I don't have to be perfect, um, but that the solution is all around me all the time. Um, and I guess I will end with something that I say all the time, which is, um, yeah, in, in this program in particular, <laughs> a magic solution is reminding myself that getting better doesn't always mean feeling better. As I get better, I might feel worse. I might feel terrible. And I have to trust, thank you, I hear that I'll wrap up. I have to trust that the feelings won't kill me and that if I'm willing to go through that one-time door of pain around that issue, feel those feelings, journal it out, whatever, I'll come through the other side to like freedom that wasn't there before. Whereas if I give in to the food, it's a revolving door of suffering, and I'll never get past that feeling. It'll just keep coming back around. So that's what I got. Thank you so much.
This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you do ask, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Okay, so I will restate the question. Anybody have a question? Um, in relation to the body image messages you got as a kid, how did you come to a level of forgiveness of that? In relation, the question was, thank you for the question. In, the, uh, in relation to the body image messages that I got as a kid, how did I come to forgiveness around the messages I was given? Um, I would say it's daily. Uh, step work helps a great deal. Um, looking at my part, which is when I was a child, I was you know a victim of that kind of indoctrination. But eventually, when I left my house at 18 or 17, I became a volunteer, right? I continued into my adulthood kind of uh, putting out that same stuff that they... So they were given it by somebody. I joke sometimes, it's not really a joke, but I come from a dynasty of this kind of dysfunction, many, many generations of people passing down, you know, messages out of their own fear, out of messaging that they were given. So there's no way to go back and see who first did that to whom, and I find that blame doesn't work. Uh, taking responsibility and hold, you know holding others accountable by turning them over to God. So I have to pray that great thing that's in the big book about pray for somebody for two weeks to have everything you want to make you happy. And that does help me have compassion for them that they were given those messages and were doing the best they could with what they had. And it was woefully inadequate, but they still were trying. And when I look at my own life, I'm doing the same thing. So if I can forgive them, I can forgive me. And that's a kind of self-regenerating cycle of love you know that's kind of higher powers i believe view on all of us is none of us are blameworthy we're all responsible um, and so we get to take responsibility while not blaming and shaming um, and i think that sets us free to stay in a place of love yeah hi thank you so much um, can you please repeat those four questions we asked you right so what are the four questions that i was taught to ask myself they are, who am I? So who am I really? Not what does my resume say, not what do I put on social media. Who am I when I sit still and ask God to give me that answer? You know, precious child of God or whatever it is that I believe about myself truly. Um, so who am I? How do I feel? Not I feel fat, not I feel unsuccessful. How do I actually feel? There's probably a true feeling, grief or sadness or frustration or anger or, or joy. But there's something there that I'm usually ignoring. So the honest answer to how do I feel? Um, what do I want? And for me, this is a key one that I, I think I actually added that one because I was taught who am I, how do I feel, what do I need? And I had to put what do I want in there because I grew up not allowed to want anything. And the feeling was, how dare you want? Who do you think you are? You're not allowed to want anything. And that, believe me, you'll eat a lot of brownies if, you're, if you think you don't deserve anything and you're not allowed to kind of have desires of a normal human being. So um, what do I want becomes a really important question to ask um, and, and answer. And then what do I need, which those are two different things. I, I may need comfort, a hug. Um, I may be telling myself that I need, you know, a bag or of crunchy things when really what I need is a cry, a good hard cry to feel some feelings or I need to call a friend um, you know and spend some time in someone's presence, that, that kind of thing bless you, so, okay sure
Uh, thank you so much for your share. Um, I, it, I don't know if you ever experienced like things going wrong and not really feeling like your higher power has your back, but like Never. I have no idea what you're talking. <laughs> so the, qu- the question was, well, did I let you finish your question? Sorry, yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, do you ever experience feeling like things are going wrong and like your higher power doesn't really have your back? And I joked, I have no idea what you're talking about because, of course, like I said, I wake up with that feeling of anxiety, especially when my life is expanding. I want to really emphasize that. As my life gets healthier because I'm no longer in the food, I expand into intimate relationships, you know, more honest conversations with my work colleagues, um, projects that are bigger and scarier than I can't control. My life isn't so small that I'm controlling it. So it feels out of control, scary, like I'm unsafe, unloved, and not going to be taken care of, and I should just turn around and run the other way and keep my life small. That's the disease for me, telling me things are going wrong, you're not going to be okay, and there's a great, it's, I guess, outside, there's an author, a famous author, who uh, I believe is attributed, this is attributed to him, I've seen a great many troubles in my life, most of which never happened. I'm mostly in my head, catastrophizing. I'm ruminating about something I did that feels this big, but really it's this big. So when I feel like things are going wrong, I get to remind myself feelings are not facts. They're not fiction either, but they're usually thought forms. And I remember having somebody say, a thought is an electrical impulse in your brain. Literally, if you don't speak Romanian and somebody walks up to you and goes, you're a terrible person in Romania, you'll just, you know, you'll just hear syllables. This is about how we, we are you know, habituated to processing the same thoughts over and over again that make us feel bad and send us to the fridge, which used to be a protective measure but now doesn't serve us. So I think when I feel bad, I try to check in and ask myself what's underneath it. I try to write a fourth step, write a tenth step. Uh, call my sponsor, call a, a trusted fellow, and get drilled down to what's underneath the I feel bad because God is taking care of me at all times whether I can feel it or not. And that's a mantra of mine. God is taking care of me right now whether I can feel it or not. I'm not kidding. I have to say it because so many times my mind is telling me it's not true. Yeah. Um, so who is the Sarah that Purdue made you discover? Because you've had so much of that change. Yeah. Who is the me that the programs have helped me discover? When I ask myself that question, who am I? I am a really big, bright light. You know, I discovered that, and that I can say that with humility. It's not showing off. I'm a chip off God, and we all are. I'm a chip off of a higher power. And so I learned things like I'm allowed to be as big as I am. I used to hunch, you know, I'm five foot 11. I used to hide and straighten my hair and literally try to make myself smaller and I learned that I get to be right sized um, and that humility um, is part of who I am today you know at my best when I can pray on my knees and ask God help me go out into the world and shine so that other people can see that that's their birthright that's their sacred obligation it's how we say thank you to God thank you for making me I'm going to go out here and have fun and wear a red sweat. Now, I'll be honest, I didn't know I was standing up in front of a room full of people. So if I remember the, the other format. You were behind a podium. And so I almost said, are you sure I can't sit down? You know, I wore these clothes for me and my enjoyment, and I feel funny standing in front of everybody. And then I remembered, who am I? I'm not a shrinking person who needs you to think everything's perfect. I am a precious child of God. So that's one answer. Yeah. Hello. Uh, you made reference to crying. Um, 
who do you cry with, who do you cry to? Mm-hmm. Thank you. So I made reference to crying. Who do I cry with? Who do I cry, whom do I cry to? I'll first say that I... There are nine tools. I used to joke that crying is the unofficial tenth tool. It is so awesome. It's better than any... I won't talk about other programs. It's better than anything else I've ever ingested for feeling a connection to my humanity. And so I do it with myself. I'll check in with... you know. I think of there's an inner little girl inside me who suffered a lot. I was abused as a kid. And so sometimes I cry with her. I cry with the people I've lost. I'll kind of think to myself, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry your life was like that. And I'll cry with them if they're you know, not here anymore. I cry in my therapist's office. I cry with fellows. I cry with friends. I've cried with a couple of boyfriends who can handle that. Um, I try to surround myself with people who get it that you have to... There's a friend uh, I have who talks about all the keys on the piano, all 88 keys. If you stay in here, dun, 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 your music is boring. You have to feel everything all the low notes and the high and I want to be surrounded by other people who are capable of playing all 88 keys with me so I cry I cry with a lot of people I'm a, you know I'm a little promiscuous with the crown uh, I saw your hand thank you so much for your lead um, I want to hear a little bit more about how you developed your relationship with your higher power and what you do to have a sense that your higher power has your back. Yes, thank you. So the question was, what did I do to develop a relationship with a higher power and how do I sense that my higher power has my back? And it's funny, as the question was being asked, those of you listening can't see me, but I put my hand right on my heart and I took a deep breath in. And those are two huge, it seems so tiny, but physicalizing my presence. You know, I used to have a, a um, sponsor who would say, feel your feet on the floor. Bring your head to where your feet are. Because as a compulsive eater, my head is out there managing, fixing, regretting, back there. Come home to my body and God is there a lot of the time if I just put my hand on my heart. And it's something you can do in public. You look a little pretentious, but I don't care. You know, what other people think of me is not as important as me not binging today. So, I'll, and I have to tell you, I'll do it. I'll just be kind of sitting there and I'll look up and other people, we, are, we mirror each other unconsciously. Um, exercise puts me into my body. Healthy exercise. God-guided, good orderly direction, that acronym for God, that kind of exercise. Feels amazing. Uh, music for me is a direct conduit to my higher power. Music that makes me feel alive and empowered. It reminds me of beauty. My, my higher power was beauty for a little while. Just like, you know, creativity and beautiful music and art and nature. Um, so I have, going out into nature, big way I get connected to God. Um, sometimes simple prayers. I've heard people say one word prayers like please. You know, two words, help me. Um, I get really colorful with my higher power. I won't say it on this recording, but my higher power invented all forms of language, so I can say anything I need to say. Anything I need to say. If I need to say, hmm, you, God, I say it. And it, it creates an intimacy. There's nothing I can't take to my God. And if I get to the point where I can't, i got to fire that one with love. Thank you for your service. Hire a bigger one who can handle what that God made. I'm made like this, so I need a God that says, I made you like that. I am your biggest cheerleader, your biggest fan. You can do no wrong, and I'm here for you. Anything you need from me. I need that kind of firepower. So I cultivate it by talking to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, when you have that negative voice in your head, that beautiful friend of ours, 
what do you do um, to help yourself get out of it? Um, the multitudes of the ways, right? So many ways. So the question was, when that negative voice gets cranked up, what do you do to get out of it, get away from it? One of the things I've discovered is um, this expression I love, what we resist persists. So there's a part of me that's like, I don't hear you. And it's like, yeah, you do. And it's getting louder because you're trying to like stuff it down. Um, So what I've noticed is observe the thoughts. They really do pass like clouds in the sky. Like I, I was given a great tool um, to say, I am having the thought that I need that muffin instead of, I need that muffin. It just gives you a hair's breadth of pause between the thought and yourself. And a beloved OA fellow from New York used to say, um, a thought is not a command. So, you know, I get to defang them. I get to, they don't get to drive the car. They can sit in the back seat. I'm not going to throw, think that I'm throwing them out on the side of the road because guess what? <laughs> you know, I'll be, I'll look up and be like, oh, I'm in a ditch. I don't know how to <laughs> So it's like allowing space for them. They're part of my mind. Like, they're, you know what I mean? When I do that thing, I'm like, I hate my ego. I'm going to kill it. Good luck with that. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Um, it's really more like, okay, I acceptance. Like acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. Acceptance is the answer to all my thoughts today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some thought unacceptable to me and I can find no serenity until I accept that thought as being there, allow space for it, let it, you know, if I latch on, I'll be there for 45 minutes. If I go, oh, guess I'm, I'm having the thought that I failed. All right, let me write out a little inventory about that. What's my fear? That I'm an unlovable person. Why do I have it? Uh, you know, my boss yelled at me. Humbly trusting and relying on God, what could I do instead? Uh, and these are columns. I actually write it. I'll write it out on a napkin. I'll be in the back of an Uber or something, just like writing an inventory. <laughs> because it shows me that what's underneath it is the pain I experience as a four-year-old being screamed at by Matt. It's not about the boss or whatever. So the thoughts, um, they're, and it's all our tools, right? Just pick up some OA literature and it will replace negative thoughts with sanity. Um, so those are just a couple of examples. Yeah. Uh, we're coming close to time, so yes. Thank you. The question was, what is my daily spiritual routine? I'm only partially joking when I say all day, every day is my daily spiritual routine. I can find spirituality in anything. I really can. I have to remember, but you are my reminders. Like when I'm not feeling spiritually fit, I know I'm way off the beam. It's like God's GPS, you know, God positioning system. If I'm nuts, I know I forgot to plug in. I'm like trying to plug into it. <laughs> this image one time that, you know, when I'm in my will, it's like I'm trying to plug my laptop into like a, a, a an old mushy banana. It's just going to ooze all over the place. I'm going, why isn't this? And I'm sticky and I'm like, what's wrong with this? And it's like, you're trying to plug a, you know, a powerful thing that needs juice into a rotting piece of fruit that can't help you. Um, that image is weird, uh, but it's true. That's what I, I just see this like, oh, I'm, it's not a suck. I'm not plugged into anything. So if I can remember, prayer on my knees first thing in the morning, even if I don't believe a word I'm saying, act as if. Act as if I believe. I say the first three steps. I say the third step, prayer. Um, and I ask, please, God, help me surrender. Help me surrender. Help me remember that surrendering is winning. I'm safe. I'm loved. I'm being cared for. Affirmations all day when I can remember them. When I can remember them, and I actually record voice memos. Maybe it's narcissism, but it's my own voice <laughs> saying the things 
that I know my inner little girl needs to hear. I'm tempted to I'll play it for you after if anyone wants to hear them. But and you can hear me. I get emotional saying to my inner little girl, "You deserve love, gentleness, and self care." You know, I I write write them for yourself. Write the ones you know you need to hear. And you can go online and find a million kinds of affirmations. OA literature is filled with wonderful nuggets like that. But um, yeah, like all day, I li- I wake up in the morning. I you know I read literature. I call a fellow. I have sponsees I talk to. That gets me on the beam spiritually. But truly, if I, I love this sweater, there's God in this sweater for me. There's God in the flowers. There was God in, you know, finding the parking space that I found and kind of. There's God in my walk and moving my body and taking a deep breath. So all day is an opportunity to remind ourselves. You know, I'm not a body. I'm a soul. Like we're souls. I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. So I believe you can actually experiment with how many places can you find God in a day. Like, make it a game. Um, and I saw one hand here. Are we done? I just had one question. Okay, I'll be quick. Is it something about feeling better and that things get worse? Yes. Can you repeat it? <laughs> yeah, thank you for asking it that way. So the question was asked that I said something about getting better and you feel, and things get worse. Yeah. And I want to clarify that the, I, I get why it was heard that way. Um, what I said was, And I got this from uh, outside help. Getting better doesn't always mean feeling better. But we are getting better. So just because it doesn't feel good, don't quit. Don't quit before the miracle. And, ba- and feeling bad is not a surprise to God. It's just part of our human experience. It's okay to sometimes not feel great. Yeah. Okay. Yay!